Ramble. I don't really like doing chores around the house, I'm going to be honest with you, and I especially used to hate doing laundry. It was just one of my more tedious tasks. It takes so much time, and I often feel tempted to not even bother sorting out my clothes. But I've been trying to motivate myself to get a lot more organized, and I finally found a way to make doing my chores so much more interesting, so much more engaging, and that's by listening to audiobooks on Audible. You guys know me, there is nothing like playing a good psychological thriller. So obviously, that's what I've been listening to. I'm currently listening to The Housemaid by Frida McFadden. The main character, Millie, is out on parole and she's desperate for her job. She doesn't have any money. She's living out of her car and she gets this opportunity to be this rich family's housemaid. Millie agrees even though there's just something really strange about the Winchesters. Especially the wife, Nina. She just seems to love finding ways to make Millie's life very difficult. The family is hiding something and Millie is hiding something and there's just so much tension between Millie and the husband. It's one of those stories that you can't stop listening to and I can't wait to finish it and start the next audiobook in this series. But if Thriller is not your thing, don't worry. Audible lets you pick from thousands of titles to find the perfect soundtrack to your day. You can find audiobooks from any genre, fiction, nonfiction, wellness, self-help. But they also have podcasts like this one, guided wellness programs, comedy, and originals. Living life without using Audible is like eating food with no seasoning. Sure, you still get your nutrients in, but it's missing that extra flavor, you know? So if you want to spice up your day, I highly recommend Audible. Audible members can keep one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. New members can try audible now free for 30 days visit audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to 500 500 that's audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to 500 500 to try audible free for 30 days bada bing bada boom welcome to this week's main episode of rotten mango i'm your host stephanie sue and let's jump right into it. No, 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 Carol. You cannot see this. Carol was upset. Why not? I want to know what you've been doing behind my back with all these other girls. Show me what's going on. And he keeps telling her, no, no, no. But this, this is going to freak you out. It's too much. You can't handle it. You're going to go berserk. If it wasn't already clear, Doug and Carol do not have a conventional relationship. Carol spent most of her time trying to please Doug with these threesomes. But for the past few weeks, things were changing. Doug was becoming more and more adventurous. He was on a mission to fulfill his deepest, darkest desires. Okay, fine. Doug relented. He pulled out the bag from the freezer and he said, but don't say I didn't warn you. And there he plopped down into the sink, a severed head. Carol gasped, but she didn't really call the cops. She didn't even scream. She didn't run. Instead, she sat down and started putting makeup on the severed head so that her boyfriend could have some more fun. This is probably the most disturbing case we've talked about in a while, so let's just get into it. As always, full show notes are available at RottenMangoPodcast.com, but there's a really good book on this case called The Sunset Murders by Louise Farr, who is an investigative journalist, and this is honestly such a well-written, well-researched, intense read. Honestly, the whole book is rather heartbreaking, and this whole case is, but the author really put in that work. They interviewed over 80 different people, went through the court documents, the tape recordings, the transcripts, even visited and interviewed Douglas Clark in prison. He also interviewed Carol Bundy, who really is like a pivotal point in this story. So you're like, who the hell is this girl, Carol? And why is she putting makeup on a severed head? Well, let's talk about her. Carol Bundy was the youngest of three kids. Uh, no association with Ted Bundy as of right now. She had an older brother named Jean and an older sister named Vicky. 
Her dad, Charles, worked as like a movie theater troubleshooter. Now, this was not a stable position. They were constantly moving. It's not like that one movie theater was constantly breaking down. He would travel from city to city, state to state, just fixing up these movie theaters. Meanwhile, Carol's mom, Gladys, she worked as a tap dancer. At one point, the family ends up in L.A. and they start putting their son to work. So remember his name is Gene? He's the eldest. Uh, this is Carol's older brother. He was put to work as a child actor in Hollywood. He started in 14 different movies. Like really? he wasn't the main lead, but he did really well. And it's, it's kind of insane. Carol visited him on set one day and she had to be dragged off. She said that was the happiest moment of my life. I, I want to do what my brother does. And Carol's mom would sit her down and say, well, Carol, you can't because you're ugly. Ouch. So imagine like being five and this is your mother. And it gets even worse. Carol thought that her mom Gladys was the most beautiful woman that ever existed to grace this planet. And Carol's older sister looked just like Gladys. But Carol did not. And it was something that the whole family kept reminding her of. When Carol turned eight, Gladys straight up said, I don't really want you. I'm disowning you because I don't want a quote, ugly daughter. She locked Carol out of the house, and when Carol begged to be let back in, Gladys would yell through the door, Go away, little girl. You don't live here. You aren't my little girl. So Carol sat outside, crying hysterically. She would even cry into her 20s anytime she thought about this incident or someone talked about it. I mean, this is really traumatizing. She finally calmed down a little bit, ran two miles to her dad's work. He drove her home, and he's like arguing with his wife, like, what's wrong with you, Gladys? This is our daughter. You're sick and twisted. And since that day, Carol said she kind of felt dead to her mom. Sure, they live together, they coexist, but Carol felt like her mom did not care about her. She didn't even want her to be around. So this just pushes her closer to her dad. And this and the fact that Carol's older siblings also hated her too. So Gene, the older brother, was jealous from the minute that Carol was born. Because he was like, wow, this newborn baby is going to get so much attention and I should be the one getting all this attention. I'm a child actor, you know? And uh, there was an incident where they came home back from the hospital with baby Carol in tow. This is like the first time they're coming back from the hospital. Gene is closing that car door and he slammed his hand in it. And he blamed Carol and he never forgave her for it so as Carol's growing up you know he would just be vicious he would grab all of her favorite things her toys her Barbies he would bury them in the sand he just loved seeing Carol cry so all of this just pushes Carol closer and closer and closer to her dad it's like the only person in her life that seems to accept her He was a good parent, at least. He loved Carol. And honestly, Carol was confused. She said she went through a rough time where she she kind of thought her childhood was abusive, but she didn't know for a fact. So, for example, during Christmas, her parents would spend money on gifts, even though money is tight, and they would hide them around the house and have these kids go on these treasure hunts, and it was really cute. Gladys would tell the kids bedtime stories. And on paper, her parents were really great. But Vicky, Carol's older sister, had a very different view. She said, we were all abused. Our mom loved to beat us. It was to the point if you gave her a belt and she started hitting us, she would go to town. She wouldn't stop. Someone had to physically peel off Gladys from her own bloody children. That's how crazy she was with these beatings. And I think Carol is just blocking it out all out of her memory. There was this one incident where I saw Carol sitting on the chair reading a book and uh, mom came up and started beating her face with a belt. Mom didn't stop until she got tired. Carol just sat there. She didn't scream. She didn't cry. She didn't try to run away. She didn't even try to shield her face. Instead, when mom got tired and she sat down, Carol got up, smiled, smirked, and left the room. 
Okay, <laughs> you're like, wow, that's that's a lot. So I mean, doesn't the dad Charles love the kids? Why didn't he stop his wife? Why didn't he call the cops on her? Because that's crazy. I don't know, but he did tell her, Gladys, you can't beat our kids anymore. I'm gonna beat them instead. Now the kids accepted their dad's beatings. They felt like their dad had done it for love. They were being beat for the sake of discipline and not because their dad wanted to. It's almost like the beating hurt their dad as well. It hurt him to hit his kids. So when Carol turns nine, she starts not being able to see well. She goes to a doctor and gets herself her first pair of glasses. And this ignited a self-hate inside of Carol. She felt even more ugly now. She had this mousy brown hair, body like a dumpling is how she called it. And now people call her four eyes. That's what they called her at school. They even called her Miss Encyclopedia because Carol liked to read the dictionary for fun. Which, like, honestly, I'm jealous of people like that. Uh. It's not really something to make fun of. And it just seems like Carol cannot, for the life of her, catch a freaking break. At 14, a few years later, Carol is home alone with her mom. And her mom calls out to her in a super weak voice from the room. Call your dad at work. Tell him to come home right now. Carol doesn't think anything of it. She rings up her dad and Charles rushes home, takes Gladys to the doctor. And I mean, the kids at this point, they can kind of assume that their mom is sick for sure. But they're not expecting their dad to come home alone and tell them your mother is dead. What? She had a heart attack. And just like that, their mom was gone. Really? Yeah. And that was the night. Well, she she smoked a lot. She did a lot of oh. really bad things for her health, you know. Okay, so dad didn't just dump her somewhere. No, no. Okay, she okay. definitely died. Okay. And then uh, that was the night that Charles turned into the devil. That very night, the girls were in the living room with Charles watching a movie. And honestly, I don't think he should have been watching a movie like this with his kids. It was called Sentimental Journey. It's about a dying woman who adopts a daughter to be her husband's companion after death. And I'm sure maybe I'm just reading the synopsis of that weird. Maybe companion as in just someone to love platonically as a daughter. I don't know. So Charles just kept telling his girls that he doesn't want to be alone and that one of the girls needs to come sleep with him. So the two daughters, they play a couple of games and the loser would have to sleep with their dad in his room. And I really don't think that they assumed anything would happen. I think that these girls were just at the age where they liked their own bed. They liked their privacy. But now their dad is sad. So, I mean, it's like you sleeping with your parent in the same bed. It's like uncomfortable, but maybe you're on vacation and there's only one bed. So yeah. they, they played rock, paper, scissors, shoot. And uh, the loser, Vicky, the older sister, she lost. Now, that was the first night that Vicky was sexually assaulted. By her own father. Oh she was ordered to perform fellatio on him and she was just 17 years old. So for the next few months, Charles is raping Vicky and eventually he comes to Carol and he tells her, you got to take over for your mom now. And Carol cried and said, you're disgusting, but he didn't care. He kept molesting her. Now, for a little while, the abuse stopped because Charles was dating and he gets remarried. So all within the eight months since Gladys's death, he has assaulted both of his daughters and gotten remarried. I mean, this guy is, he's busy. Now, Carol's life did not get easier with her stepmom because Charles had this thing where he just loved humiliating his own kids in front of his new wife. He would just straight up call Carol fat and stupid and then would continue to molest her behind closed doors. And this is kind of when the kids find out that Charles is a raging alcoholic. They were shocked. Gladys hid it from them for years, for decades. She would always hide Charles in their bedroom and say, oh, your dad's not feeling well. Your dad is sick. 
But now they know the truth. He wasn't sick. He was just belligerently drunk. And this is like a this is like a crazy shock to Carol, who grew up her entire life thinking everybody sucks. But my dad, my dad is a hero, my savior. But now, now it's like, what? So instead of coming to terms with this truth and being like, okay, your parents are never as great as they seem when you're a kid. She convinced herself that her dad was grieving. This is just him acting out for the loss of his beloved wife. I mean, who wouldn't handle it weirdly? Who wouldn't grieve in a strange way? Sure, he's molesting us, but it's honestly because he's going through a tough time. And it's a phase. He's going to get over it. But then Charles tried to kill her. Yeah, no, really. Okay, a few months into his new marriage, Carol and Vicky, they were out doing their thing. And Charles grabbed his shotgun, shot the pet cat, just shot it dead, and tried to shoot his new wife. But she managed to dodge, wrestled the gun away, called the cops. And Carol came home later. And uh, the dad was like, hey, you want to know a secret? I was arrested because I was trying to kill all of you guys. The minute that you walked in through that front door, I was going to blow your brains out. I was going to kill you. What? (laughs) So he's arrested, but his ex-wife decided not to press charges. And all he got charged with and pled guilty to was disturbing the peace. Are you kidding me? Disturbing the peace. So Carol and Vicky, they're sent to live with their grandma in Michigan. But within a year, Charles somehow gets them back. I don't know why the state is not doing anything about this. He drives them back to California. So they've been moving around. Mm -hmm. They're back in California. And even on the highway, he started swerving onto different lanes just to try to scare them. And then they would never stay put. There was just no stability. During Carol's lifetime, she had gone to 23 different schools. And the sexual abuse just really traumatized her. As a trauma response, she believed that if she had sex with a man, that they would love her. She started becoming incredibly sexually active, but with people that knew better. So not just fellow students, but people like old bus drivers. Yeah, school bus drivers, and the kids would make fun of her for it. They found out, and they started this vicious rumor that she was pregnant with a bus driver's baby. So she's getting bullied. She's so distraught, she tries to take her own life at 17 years old. Then, a couple months later, she gets away from her dad and gets married to the first man who shows her any bit of love. At 17, she marries a 56-year-old guy named Leonard. He didn't even love her. He honestly just wanted to pimp her out. So Carol did sex work during her time with Leonard. And then during this, she meets a guy named Dick Guys. And uh, he's much younger. He's 32. Still nowhere near an appropriate age to be dating a 17-year-old. But I digress. And Dick was instantly attracted to Carol. He said, and I quote, Carol was pathetically eager to please. And she had, quote, big boobs. So the two of them, they start dating, which, side note, Dick said that he was an author of porn. So I don't know if that meant that he wrote erotic stories or if he was a screenwriter for porn, which, by the way, I mean, they need better screenwriters for porn. But that's just another uphill battle for another day. Yeah, so he's writing porn and she's spending most of her time with Dick. And when she turns 20, her dad hangs himself. And she just felt like this was her fault. For his death. Even though he's the one abusing her, he's the one that molested her and failed spectacularly as a father, Carol is just putting all of this guilt on herself. And Dick, instead of sticking by her side, he just keeps breaking up with her. They were constantly on and off. Carol even started experimenting with women and um, she realized that they were just as bad as men. Women will also break your heart. Women will also use you and then you'll be left with nothing. So she went back to Dick. 
unintentionally, but very true statement. She goes back to Dick, the guy and the guy. But Carol is still always getting hurt, though. She just never stood up for herself. I mean, it's said that she was the type to just let people walk all over her. And it was heartbreaking, but also kind of frustrating for people to see. Just like, come on, say something. Just say no. Dick said that he knew that Carol was cheating on him. There was this 70-year-old guy who ran a local bookstore and Carol would spend Thursday nights with him to earn $20 and as many books as she could physically carry out of his bookstore. Yeah, she had sex with him for books, which is pretty heartbreaking. You say 70-year-old? Yeah, 70 years old. So Carol begs Dick to put her through nursing school, help her pay for it, please, please, please. And he told her he would only if she gets good grades in nursing school. Like, you're not going to do this and fail and waste my money on tuition. But she did more than that. She was class valedictorian. Wow. Now, this is where the story gets a little bit confusing. During her nursing school days, Dick and Carol break up. They stay in touch, so they weren't on the worst of terms, right? But Mm -hmm. Carol meets another man by the name of Grant Bundy, and they get married. So Grant happened to be a nurse, and he, again, was older than her, and the two of them end up having two sons. Let's call them Chris and Spike. And the whole time, Carol believes Grant was gay. He just married her as a beard. That's what she told everyone. And she said the minute that she had kids, Grant changed. He started to belittle her. He would slap her around. Eventually, he would start punching her. He would beat the kids as well. And since Carol was used to seeing parents beat their kids, she just thought, oh, well, this is normal. It took her a long time to leave Grant. And to make things worse, she went to an eye doctor. And she was told that her eyesight is deteriorating rapidly and she's going to go blind and there's nothing to reverse this. I mean, she's in her mid-30s. She's a nurse. Mm -hmm. She cannot afford to go blind right now. She felt like her life was over. She had to quit her job. She was completely dependent on Grant now. She could barely see anything that was in front of her face. She couldn't even see her face in the mirror. It was getting that bad. It was just blobs everywhere. But finally, when her kids were six and four years old, she decided that the abuse was too much. She packed up her bags, found a local woman's shelter, and the nuns there, they told her about this place called Valerio Gardens. It's a local apartment complex in Van Nuys, California, in Los Angeles. And moving there, it would change Carol's life forever. And this is why. So the apartment manager, his name is Jack Murray. And you're like, wow, Stephanie, do we really need to go on a tangent about Jack Murray? Yes, we do. He's so pertinent to this story. Now, Jack Murray was a part-time singer slash part-time apartment manager from Australia. He came to LA like a lot of people in the hopes of just making it big, becoming a superstar. But he needed a job in the meantime. So he's an apartment manager. And he showed Carol all the available units. And she really liked it. The apartment was well lit. And uh, with her rapidly deteriorating eyesight, she really needed good lighting. So this was perfect. She knew it wasn't luxurious. She could tell by even stepping on the carpet that it was cheap. But it was spacious for her and the kids. So she tells Jack, I'll take it. I'm going to drop off some boxes tomorrow. Is that great? And she moves in, and over time, she really gets to know Jack well. I mean, he would always stop by to fix things in their apartment, which things were constantly breaking. And he would ask, hey, Carol, do you have a glass of wine? And he would sit down, and he would spend hours talking. Not even to Carol, just monologues about himself. He really loved talking about himself. That was his thing. His full name was John Robert Murray. He was born in Australia. He grew up loving performing music. So he moves to the U.S. And he stumbles across a couple of clubs. Masker's Club, though, is the one that he talks about a lot. Because apparently, Frank Sinatra had been a member of that club. Which, by the way, 
in Jack's eyes, Frank Sinatra's got nothing on him. Frank Sinatra's voice is wimpy. He's not even talented. I mean, it was pure luck that he became a household name. Jack Murray can outwit him, outbeat him, outsing him, out everything. Fork Frank Sinatra. Yeah, he went on tangents about Frank Sinatra. And then there were the war stories. So Jack had a really hard time sticking to one version. Sometimes he said he fought in the Vietnam War in the Australian Army. And then sometimes he said that he was part of the undercover operations for the CIA in the U.S. And then went to Vietnam and did assassinations and that sort of thing. So and Jack also was the type of guy that seemed to be into becoming someone in L.A. And he really only wanted to be someone so that he could get girls. He even married one of them after knowing her for just a week. Her name was Jeanette, and it's suspected that he only married her so that he could get a green card. So he keeps losing these jobs. Now, this is before he's an apartment manager, okay? He keeps losing his jobs, never focusing on his music. He's desperate for cash. And his wife that got pregnant, his wife that he married for a green card got pregnant. So he takes a job as the apartment complex manager. He hated it. It's not a powerful position, but it's $1,000 a month and a free two-bedroom apartment, free utilities, access to a swimming pool, and flexible hours so he could still go to the clubs and sing. So Jack and his wife, they move in, they have their first kid, and, you know, this baby even won the Burbank Beautiful Baby Contest. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which is like... Starting them young. Exactly. And imagine that's like the peak of your life, because I feel like that would be the peak of my life. Yeah. <laughs> the happiest moment. And then they had another baby. And while they're still at this apartment complex, Jack's friends said that Jack was becoming power hungry while he's managing the place. He would actually consider it my building. Like he would say, my place, my building, my people. And everyone's like, bro, aren't you just managing the place? And this is owned by some millionaire that's living in Hollywood Hills. Like what's going on? And he'd be like, no, my building. Even his wife was getting scared of his power trips. He was adamant and he would constantly put it in her head. I'm the head of the house, which like red flag. If someone ever said, I'm the man of the house, I'm the head of this house. And you will listen to me. The kids were not allowed to be kids. He hated when they went outside and played with other kids because he thought that they were getting dirty and that dirty kids are just a sign of low class. The kids weren't allowed to spill anything or make any noise. He would hit them on the stomach and say, stand up straight. You need to look like a soldier. And Jeanette, his wife, I mean, he just turned her into arm candy. He said if they ever left the house together, he would say, what are you wearing? You wearing pants? No, go put on the shortest skirt you have and make sure you have a full face of makeup on. Like he wanted Jeez. her to look like a, like I guess a bimbo is like how people would, ref like, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. yeah. Like he wanted her to look no thoughts in her brain. Yeah. Like if she ever started talking about anything that wasn't like my hair, he'd be like, shh, we don't need to do this at the club. Like you can talk about mathematics when we get home. Can you just act like you don't think anything inside of that head of yours? It's, it's so, so interesting weird. that he wants that. Yeah, because he just was obsessed with making her look like arm candy. And he's like this oh, successful I dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he wants to look like, oh, I'm dating this girl that has just pretty that's yes and i am yes successful and everyone would look at that couple and go man i think she's probably dating him for the money like that kind of vibe <laughs> which i don't think anybody wants okay, even I successful people but right. like that's the vibe he wanted really wanted it and he kept trying to get her to dye her hair blonde mm. and he would tell her i love leggy blondes you've got the legs but you should really consider bleaching your hair 
And then there was the energy. Jack just had too much energy. And it was nervous energy, like not good energy. He could not sit still for two seconds. He was always redoing the wallpaper, changing his outfit five times a day. He would keep Jeanette up all night having sex to the point where she was so exhausted, she just wanted it to stop. I'm sure there were other reasons she didn't want to have sex with him. Um, A huge one being that he was cheating on her and she probably knew. So even when her second child was born, uh, when she was pregnant, she was actually rushed to the hospital for complications. Jack did not go to the hospital with her. He was at their home, their family home with another woman while their baby's life was on the line. Are you kidding me? Are you serious? Anytime his wife was like, you need to stop cheating on me. He would just blame it on being Australian. (laughs) He would say, us Australians just have permanently hard dicks. (laughs) <laughs> he would say that and i would i mean oh, if you're australian pics or it didn't happen no i'm kidding i'm kidding but like what so one time jack was so abusive though that he broke his wife's elbow and this is when she decides okay i gotta leave him but he all, just always would get her back by hunting her down at whatever motel she was at bringing his guitar and serenading her through the window. And it was the same damn song every single time. It was, I can't help but falling in love with you. Yeah, that one. Don't sing it. We're going to lose all our viewership. <laughs> you sing it. I can't. Okay. You know what I'm talking about. And she would feel very pathetic. She hated herself for it. But for some reason, she just found herself always going back to him. And a huge reason probably was that she didn't have any money. And he always threatened her. If you leave me. I'll find you and I will take those kids with me to Australia and you will never see them again. Other than the war and that the fact that he's better than Frank Sinatra, Jack did not tell Carol any of this, any of the fact that he was sleeping with other women, that he was an abusive husband, none of that. So Carol's just sitting there hearing about his sheer talent and his courageous army days. And she's in a really low point in her life. She's almost blind, running away from her abusive husband. And Jack, this talented guy is taking time out of his day to talk to her. She was impressed. He even offered to drive her to the social security office to apply for disability payments. I mean, Carol was in love. By the third time he visited, they skipped the wine chat and they went straight to sex. They continued on with their affair and Carol hid the affair from her sons because honestly, they wanted to go back with their biological dad. Sure, he was abusive, but They were kids, so like the minute that he apologized, they forgave him. So Jack obviously hid this from his wife as well. And she genuinely thought that her husband was changing. He was such a good person. I mean, what kind of husband helps out a blind single mom by driving her around to get her disability checks? And Carol was nice. Her boys were really polite, well-mannered, which is, it's got to be a sign that the mom is a good person, right? But after a few months, Jeanette realized just how much time he was spending with Carol. And she was getting a little irked. Even if Jack were fixing up another tenant's apartment, Carol was there just standing next to him quietly. And she'd be like, what is she doing there with you? What does she want? Why is she just following you around? That's weird. And Jeanette was annoyed, but she wasn't really suspicious. You know, and Jack would just shrug. I, I don't know. She just, she just follows me. Jeanette did not know that Carol and Jack were having sex in empty units in Jack's car when he drove her around. And honestly, to even say that they were having sex is a very liberal statement to make. Jack was mainly the one on the receiving end. He really liked fellatio. And apparently, giving head was Carol's specialty. That's how they said it, not me. That's how they phrased it. And if Carol ever asked for anything in return, he would say, Well, you know, I'm from Australia. And the way it works over there is that men are men and women know their place. So no, you don't get to get off. 
And Carol did not know better. She was just like, oh, I guess that's how it works in Australia. She just went with it. And Jeanette realized how funky fresh everything was. Sometimes Carol would walk downstairs with her cane, walk to Jack's parking spot, reach for his car and realize it's not there and would just walk back up. Jeanette would literally see this with her own two eyes. She also realized that Carol would sit on her little balcony and the sound of Jack's car would come. She would rush inside. And when Jack walked in through the door, there'd be a call from Carol. My fridge is broken. One of my boys dropped a toy down the toilet. Can you come fix it? My dishwasher is broken. And they all live in the same apartment. Yes. That's crazy. And if Jeanette didn't know that Jack liked leggy blondes, she would have thought something strange was going on. But since she knew this, she just thought overall... Carol was harmless. Maybe she had a crush on Jack. And uh, Jeanette even called Carol, quote, fat, short, and brunette. So she didn't really see her as a threat, I guess. And then one day, Carol showed up with blonde streaks in her hair. And just like that, Jeanette's eye twitched a little. But she had no idea how bad it was. Jack was even taking Carol to the club that he sings at in his free time. Everyone Knew that he was married. Everyone, Jeanette would go on the weekends with Jack. Mm -hmm. So now he's showing up with another woman and everyone nicknamed her the blind bat. Yeah, the blind bat, because I guess bats are blind. So that's great. Good people to hang out with. And even though everyone knew that Carol wasn't Jack's wife and Jack's wife was at home, Carol could not hide her obsession with Jack at all. But one of the customers was confused. He was a regular. He'd seen Jack and Jeanette. And he tells her, why are you cheating on your wife with someone uglier than your wife? And he looks at him and Jack says, well, she gives great head. Even if Carol overheard, she might not have reacted in a way because uh, Jack was the nicest person she had ever met in her eyes. For example, one time she said, hey, Jack, I feel really insecure about my boobs because they're so big that I feel like they're not really attractive. Like they're not perky. They're so big that gravity weighs them down. And he sits there in silence and he thinks about it for a little. And he says, yeah, but you have pretty nipples. And that was the nicest thing a man had ever said to Carol. So with Jack, Carol said she felt truly beautiful for the first time ever. And the small amounts of money that she was loaning Jack, I mean, was all worth it. She was in love and giving him money made her feel like for once she had some control in a relationship. Carol would ask him, Jack, do you think we'll ever be together? Yes, but years down the line, when both of our divorces are finalized, but you know, divorce is expensive. You don't have money for a divorce. I don't have that type of money right now, but eventually we will. And Carol believed him. Why wouldn't she? Carol even got a second opinion like he told her to about her eyes. And she found out that it wasn't an irreversible condition. It was cataracts. She just needed a few surgeries and she would have her life back. So she told herself, Jack loves me. He loves me more than he loves Jeanette. But they would have like little low moments when she would see the two together and they just look so happy and it would cause her to spiral into these little depressions. And in order to feel powerful in their relationship again, she would shower Jack with expensive gifts. And then a very traumatic thing happened. Carol was able to get her vision permanently restored. It would always be a bit distorted, but she could see rather clearly again, clearly enough to get her job back as a nurse. And that's when she realized the first time looking in the mirror in years, She was not beautiful. Jack made her feel beautiful, like she was the prettiest girl in the world, that she was prettier than his wife, Jeanette, but she wasn't. And then she saw Jack for the first time and was like, you know what? He ain't no Prince Prince Charming either. So what? I was going to say Prince Harry. (laughs) So everything was okay again. 
She gets $25,000 from her ex-husband selling their house. And she felt like a rich woman. She spent like $5,000 on new furniture. She, you know, yeah, she would get facials and just leave $100 tips for like a $50 facial. And everyone's like, what is going on? She even opened up a joint bank account with guess who? With Jack. And she put like $15,000 in there. No. So she's still into him. So into him. And he told her, oh, this money, I'm not going to use it, but I will if anything happens to you and uh, I'm going to take care of your boys. I'm going to treat them like my own. My dogs will eat anything. I mean, I have two Frenchies and it's a daily struggle to keep them from trying to eat toilet paper, bees, even trash. My dogs have no idea what's good for them. And you know, that's okay because their job is to be cute. My job is to take care of them to the best of my ability. That is why I only buy the farmer's dog dog food. Think about it. Most dog foods claims it's made out of whole ingredients. But then why does it come in the form of these very crusty pellets? But dogs will eat anything you give them, even dry kibble. Most dog food claims that they're made out of whole ingredients. But when I stare at these dry kibbles, it's very hard for me to see the whole ingredients. And I always had to mix in bone broth or water because it would be so dry that my dogs would eat too quickly and they would hack it up. It just didn't look tasty. The farmer's dog believes that all dogs deserve to eat real fresh food. That's why Farmer's Dog dog food is made from whole wheat and veggies and gently cooked in human-grade kitchens to preserve nutritional value. It makes me feel so good seeing my dog's little tails wagging. Sometimes Mango's entire butt will shake when it's time for their dinner because they know and I know that they're eating fresh, healthy food. It genuinely looks like human food. I've noticed such an improvement in how shiny and soft their coat is and their breath doesn't teleport me into another dimension anymore. I can see the veggies in their food. I mean, my dog always gains a little bit of weight this time last year just because they move around less when it gets a little bit colder so i feel like it's very important to always watch portions in the winter months the farmer's dog makes it easy to monitor my dog's portions our dog's meals arrive in pre-portioned ready to serve packs which is super convenient all you need to do is tell the farmer's dog about your puppy or your dog and they'll deliver personalized vet developed recipes for as little as two dollars a day and you can adjust the recipe selection portion sizes and delivery cadence according to your needs and schedule Get 50% off your first box of fresh, healthy food at thefarmersdog.com slash mango. That's 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash mango. Our apartment lease in New York City is almost up, which means it's time for that hunt for the perfect apartment again. And I'm sure everyone can agree to this, but when your apartment takes off all of the boxes, you feel so much happier being home. You look forward to going home. But it is hard. It is hard finding the perfect place, especially in a place like New York. For us, we need to have an in-unit washer and dryer. That is like a non-negotiable. We need to have hardwood floors because of my allergies. And we love any unit facing Southwest. That is golden hour prime time. And since we're not in New York City right now, we've been using Apartments.com to help us find our new home. Apartments.com has helped millions of renters find their perfect place with powerful search tools to help find a rental listing that checks all of your specific unique boxes. I love that there's a ton of 3D virtual tours, which have come in honestly so handy for us because we're constantly traveling these days. It saves us so much time and money, and it's really helpful for if you're moving to a new city. Maybe you're moving to the next town over. Saves you so much time. My favorite feature, though, is the amenity filters. So you can make sure your possible future home has all of the amenities you need. Like I said, in-unit washer and dryer. But you can even search for units with a balcony so you can enjoy a nice sunrise with your coffee. 
And once you find a new place that you like, you can even favorite them so they're all neatly organized. I get so excited to apartment hunt every night with my fiance. So visit apartments.com, the place to find a place. But then one day, Jack comes up to Carol and says, I can't leave my wife. She has cancer. And I can't, I can't leave her when she's sick. You know, think about it. Think about how people would feel about me. And I just couldn't live with the guilt. So if I'm going to divorce her, I need to make sure that she's healthy again. Which I've been meaning to ask. Carol, can I borrow $10,000 to pay for her medical bills? Carol agreed. Wild. She gave him $10,000. And uh, in exchange for spending that much money on his wife, she slept with his wife's 23-year-old brother. Yeah. So she slept with Jack's brother-in-law. 23 years old and she told everyone in the complex that warren was better in bed than jack so then everyone found out that she's having an affair with jack i mean it was just it was so complex in order to rekindle their love though they both lied to their families and they went on a trip to las vegas and their very first night it started off with a bang they were watching nude dancers and then suddenly jack said i gotta go to the casino he left by himself and for five days she had no idea where he was just Alone in Vegas, probably doing God knows what with that $10,000 that he's definitely not using on medical treatments. And uh, she didn't see him until their ride to the airport. She's like, hello, what happened? Where were you? And he refused to talk. And back at that apartment complex, Carol was so pissed. She left her suitcase in Jack's car and it was clear that Jeanette was going to find it. So Jeanette confronts Carol. Is this your suitcase? Is this your suitcase? Did you leave your suitcase in his car? Why would your suitcase be in his car? Carol decides to distract Jeanette. Listen, I don't know whose suitcase that is, but how's your cancer treatment going? And she's like, cancer? What are you talking about? All I had to do was remove a little cyst. That's all. Carol's like, what the hell? She confronts Jack. Like, what the hell did you use the money for? Oh, that? Uh, I spent some in Vegas and I used the rest to pay off my car. So they get into this huge fight and Jack is like, none of your business what I did with the money. And then he realized he probably should not be mean to someone that he just stole $10,000 from. So he starts apologizing. And for some reason, Carol stays with him. And she even buys him a watch and a gold chain as a Christmas gift, along with some Chanel cologne. And it was just getting intense to the point where Jeanette could not even deny their affair anymore. She knew that divorcing her husband was going to be intense. She needed proof of this affair. Meanwhile, Carol was willing to provide it. She stomped on over to Jeanette and Jack's on Christmas Day when Jack was out of the house, probably with another woman. And she sat down and said, Jeanette, I will give you $1,500 to leave Jack. Jeanette said, even if you get rid of me, it doesn't mean you're going to get Jack. Oh, yes, I will. I will step right into your shoes. It's like you never even left. But it's not up to you. It's Jack's choice. If he wants you, fine. Let me have my kids and I'll leave. The minute that Jack gets home, Jeanette confronts him. Carol said she wants to pay me $1,500 to leave you. Should I take it? What? She says she's in love with you and you guys are having an affair. And she's sure that she can just replace me and fit into my shoes. That's what she said. So Jack runs over to Carol's unit and starts screaming at her, Stay out of my life! No woman is going to come between me and my family. How heroic. <laughs> what a man okay so for the next few days carol just ebbs and flows between super manic and super depressed and she would even go to the little club that jack played at and she would see jack and Jeanette on the dance floor his wife was prettier skinnier and she just felt sorry for herself and at the same time she got this very uneasy feeling someone was staring at her 
she looked up and she saw this tall, blonde man in an expensive-looking suit. And he smiled. Would you like to dance? Carol accepted, and they started swinging on the dance floor, and she was in heaven. He knew how to move. He knew how to dance. He was nice. He was handsome. And above all, she could see Jack staring in the corner of the room. This mysterious man who swept her off her feet was Douglas Clark. He was 31, which is a full five years younger than Carol at the time. He was an engineer, and he never made any sexual advances that night. He didn't need to. Carol was melting in his hands. She was practically throwing herself at him like, please call me, please. So a couple days later, he comes over to hang out with Carol. He had dinner with her sons, tucked them into bed. And um, you're like, okay, kind of weird, kind of sweet to meet them so early on, but kind of sweet, I guess. But he announces to her young sons, all right, good night, everyone. Don't leave your room because I will be spending the night with your mother. And he closes the door. And Carol's like, uh, excuse me, that is, that, that's not okay. I'm a little bit upset about this. I don't understand why you would do something like this. But she forgot all about it in the bedroom. She said she had the most superb sexual connection ever. It wasn't just all fireworks, though. When Doug took off his clothes, he apologized immediately. Like the minute that he took off his pants, he hung his head and said, my penis is unusually small for a six-foot-tall man, but I will compensate in other ways. Don't worry. <laughs> And compensate, he did. He did everything. Carol had never received oral sex before, and uh, he was doing it. He was also whispering in her ear that she was intelligent, which is a really weird thing to say. I don't know. I feel like I'd be a little thrown off. (laughs) I'd be like, wait, what? I'm not even doing anything intelligent right now. (laughs) This feels almost insulting. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I feel like I'd be insulted rather than complimented. Like, what's going on? (laughs) Why do you feel the need to tell me this? (laughs) You know what? You're actually really smart. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, what? (laughs) And this is a whole new world for someone like Carol. They spent hours doing it. Carol fell asleep in his arms. And the next morning, she woke up to him there. He didn't leave. He was there. He was smiling at her, tucking the hair behind her ears and asking her, can I move in? (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, of course. Oh, and one more thing. Can I have a pair of your underwear? Whoa, whoa, whoa. What? I, why? Oh, I like to wear my lover's underwear so that I can be reminded of them. It's kind of sweet, no? Carol hesitated, not because she didn't want to and not because she thought it was weird, but more so she was really insecure about her size. She had incredibly large breasts and... Um, I guess she wore like a, in her opinion, a larger size of underwear, which honestly probably wasn't even that large and who cares, but she was very insecure about it. And she felt like if he knew the size, he'd be turned off. Mm -hmm. So she hesitantly brings him a pair of undies and he holds them up with two fingers into the light, stares at it in silence and goes, oh, these are far too big and just throws it at her face and leaves. (laughs) Like, what? what? (laughs) what so carol is so embarrassed but i mean just chaos now doug does not move in immediately and she feels like okay is it because of my underwear but in the meantime she had her own chaos happening jack is suddenly sick of her and feels like she's trying to ruin his family so he kicks her out of the apartment she finds another apartment unit a two-bedroom place less than three miles away i mean the units were smaller but they were cleaner jack even helped carol move And this resulted in Carol sending him a letter and it was quite desperate. She wrote, I love you. 
What can I do to please you, to make you happy? I only regret having to leave Valero. Someday, will you have me back? I know who is my master, and I will follow your lead. And she ends the note with, please, will you give me a pet name? So yeah, Carol's a mess, and uh, Jack was tempted by this letter because he ended up coming over at least three times a week to have sex with Carol. So he really only came over to have sex or to ask for money. And eventually, Carol is slowly starting to feel unsatisfied by this. She feels like she deserves better. And I'm sure a lot of it has to do with the fact that Doug was coming over now. So she's got this other man and she starts falling for this guy. Doug even took her to the bar that Jack went to and Doug and Jack immediately hated each other. Carol was ecstatic. She thought it was their wild jealousy over her that they hated each other. And when Doug found out that Carol had lent Jack $10,000, he was livid. He said, and I quote, no more freebies from mama. You're buying his ass and it's okay to pay a guy to fuck you, but not $10,000 a fuck. Doug hated that Jack had influence over Carol and more importantly, her money. And Jack hated that Doug was influencing Carol to stop blindly giving him money. Carol loved it. She thought they were fighting for her love and attention. Okay, when in reality, they're fighting for who takes advantage of her. So she kept both of their pictures in her wallet. She would show them off to ladies at the salon like, I don't know which one to choose from. They're fighting over me. What do I do? Uh, Doug was more romantic, though. He also loved to talk about himself. It, It was also monologues, not conversations. He would also sprinkle in a ton of French because he went to a Swiss boarding school in Switzerland. And he did not want anyone to forget that. It's really hard to forget that. So here's what Doug is like. Doug Clark was born in Pennsylvania to a Franklin. His dad's name is Franklin, and he was stationed in the Navy. So Doug's siblings, they just remember Doug to be this super competitive dude. Like, he fought for their parents' attention. He would kill for it. Doug was a bit of a brown noser. His parents loved him, favored him, and Doug's siblings hated him. Not for that, not because he was the favorite, but because he was a pathological liar. And on top of that, Doug even admitted that when he was nine years old, his mom caught him wearing his sister's underwear. So I guess they never really had an open, healthy conversation about it. I mean, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but just at least have an open conversation so your child feels safe. But she just swept it under the the rug and was like, oh, he's just, that's like a one-time thing. Anyways, the family starts moving around quite a bit since Franklin's Navy position. He was pretty high up in the Navy. The kids hated it. Doug claimed he lived in 37 countries total. He had to keep readjusting, losing all his friends. But it also taught him that consequences are temporary. It's not that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. If your teacher hates you, if you get in trouble, if everybody hates you and thinks you're a bully, well, guess what? In a few months, you move, you start fresh. Wow, that's so true. And you can be whoever you want, he said. That really does mess up with your oh, like sense of consequences and long term, like yeah, yes. And they would start fresh. I mean, they went from the U.S. to Japan to India, and in India, that was where Doug was the happiest because their family could afford seven to eight servants that catered to everything that they wanted. They had private tutors. He felt rich, and Doug was given so much freedom. Which I find to be odd because as the son of a military family, he did not have a strict routine, which is pretty consistent amongst, I mean, true crime aside, but just amongst military kids, I've just heard, you've got a strict routine day in, day out, like there's no time for jokes. But I guess not with his parents. He would buy liquor and force the servants to drink it with him and they would be all passed out in the living room. His parents didn't care. The other American families living in the same complex in India as the Clarks, they complained to Doug's parents like, hey, your kid's a bully. 
Now, he's not super violent, but he's not a nice person. Like, he keeps flicking wet towels at my kids and it's hurting them. It's like leaving welts. And instead of investigating or being upset with Doug, Doug's parents would say, there's no way that's our little Doug. It's probably your child. Your child is a snot-nosed brat who doesn't know one thing from another. It's probably not Doug. They're making shit up. But eventually, Doug was sent off to boarding school in Geneva. And uh, I think really he was only sent there because his parents wanted to say, oh, our kid's in Geneva. And it was a pretty fancy school. A lot of kids with important parents were there. Uh, Just a ton of rich kids, you know, exactly what you imagine. And Doug was instantly upset that he wasn't one of the elites at the school. No, listen, military money is good money. But some of these kids, they were like oil money, freaking generational wealth money. Like this is a different league. He wanted to be the snobbiest of them all, though. He would constantly boast to his classmates. You know, I'm quite rich, you know. You know that, right? My dad's a bajillionaire, and I really shouldn't have to eat all this crappy food that they serve here. Where's the caviar? I have that with every meal. Meanwhile, the kid is literally failing every single class and getting in trouble for just bullying and never taking accountability for anything. Obviously, none of these rich kids wanted to be Doug's friend. He was just rude, he's very arrogant, and he wasn't rich. So like, how could they hang out with him? (laughs) I don't know how these schools work. He would also brag about how he would sleep with daughters of Hollywood producers when he went out skiing in the Alps. And they were always older than him. But thankfully, the kids didn't have to put up with Doug for long. Doug was expelled for writing very inappropriate letters to his female teachers. They were filled with, quote, dark, deep, unpleasant thoughts. I'm assuming sexual? After this, his parents sent him to a Culver Military Academy in Arizona, which is another strict and expensive boarding school. It was one that his dad had wanted to go to because his dad grew up in Arizona and was like, oh, all the rich kids go here. So just sent him along. It was lights out by 11. Wake up at 6. Make your bed. I mean, this was that military kid regimen. Like, this was it. If you misbehave, they make you march around campus while carrying a heavy rifle. And Doug hated it. The teachers noticed that Doug was smart, but he didn't put in the work. He hated studying. He didn't have friends. Most of the kids were thrown off by his outlandish stories. Just the fact that, you know, all these Hollywood producers' daughters that were older than him were literally lining up outside the door to have sex with him. Like one would get off of him and then the next one would be like, my turn, my turn. Like, who's going to believe that? But sometimes he did manage to sneak in girls and seduce them and have sex with them in the academy. But what would he do? He would make sure to have an audio recording under the bed so that he could play it for his, quote, friends and brag to them. Now, he graduates at 19 and he gets released into a very unwelcoming real world. The Vietnam War was raging and honestly, the U.S. was divided. Doug was on the side where he was very conservative and he supported the war. Did he have the balls to go fight in the war, though? No, absolutely not. (laughs) He does go into the military, though, and he begs to be placed somewhere in the U.S., so they send him to Alaska, where he spends most of his time hiring sex workers. Anyway, he leaves the army, and he tells wild stories about why he left, and it all involves him being a white savior, literally. One variation of the story goes like this. My comrades, my white comrades, were going to kill a black soldier because he was black, and I stood up for that black man... And uh, the army kicked me out. 
another variation was like oh i physically beat up a white guy for trying to beat up a black guy and then i got kicked out now do i think that this stuff happens in the military and there's a lot of racism and a lot of these very very evil sinister things going on absolutely do i think doug is the type of person to stop these types of things absolutely not and we will get into why later after that doug ends up in van nuys california with his sister where he runs into a girl, let's call her Diana, at a bar. They get married. And at first, things are going great. They're wearing each other's underwear to work. Yeah, which is Doug's idea. But he slowly kept talking about how he wanted a threesome. And Diana just didn't want one. So he would go on these passionate rants about how much he loved sex workers. Yeah, so very healthy relationship. Doug later claimed that he was running a brothel out of his upholstery shop that he opened up, which if you guys listen to the Hillside Stranglers case I did a while back, very similar to Angelo, the Hillside Stranglers. There's actually a lot of crossover in these two cases. Two serial killers, well, I guess three because of Kenneth, the two Hillside Stranglers and Douglas Clark, lots of crossover. They end up even dating the same girl at one point. What? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So Doug claimed to have met up with Angelo at his garage. So Doug later claims, oh, yeah, the Hillside Strangler, I met up with one of them and I, I even dated a roommate of his. Now, this is not the same girl that they dated. That's for later. But he's just claiming that he knows the Hillside Stranglers, but he didn't know that they were the Hillside Stranglers. But anyways, Doug and Diana, they break up, but they stay in touch. Doug would just pop on over to borrow her truck every now and then, which the police said was a very peculiar truck because the inside handles were missing. What does that mean? Given Ted Bundy, the inside oh, handles. the door handle, got it. But I digress, and Doug starts working at Jergens. Yeah, the soap and lotion company, the massive one. My mom is probably the only one keeping Jergens alive. Do you know how many bottles of Jergens she hoards? It's been her go-to lotion for years. It's weird. I'm trying to get her off of it, okay? <laughs> and uh, he works as a steam engineer, and that brings us back to Carol's apartment. He's sitting there telling her all of this about how amazing he is and what a successful life he's living against all odds. God knows how many exaggerations and lies he's told, but he knew Carol would eat it up. They always did. Doug targeted women like her. The more desperate, the better. And if they ever started asking questions, he would just leave. Find another woman. What's the point? Carol never really talked about herself around Doug. That's the way he liked it. He never gave her the chance to talk. If she wasn't entertaining and listening to his crazy stories, she was cooking and cleaning for him. And she was okay with it because they were in love. One time, Doug actually listened to Carol, but it was when he asked her about her deepest, darkest sexual fantasies. Carol said she loved BDSM. And that turned Doug on. But he always went up to her. He said, my ultimate fantasy... I want to kidnap a girl, take her to the country house where there's a torture chamber set up and she will be my sex slave for years. Carol thought it was great, so she pretended to be a sex slave for the night. Did she think that he was serious about this fantasy? Probably not, but one thing led to another and he started opening up about more fantasies. And it would always slowly start involving murder. He would say, I mean, what's so wrong with murder? Throughout history, people have always shown little or no regard for human life. We killed left and right, and why wouldn't we? Wouldn't you kill if you had the chance? It'd be so fun to kill. And anyone that I am with should be willing to kill for me. So the couple fell into this routine. Every single night before sex or after, they would talk about their fantasies. Doug would tell Carol that he was once a hitman for the mafia, and he charged $300 a hit, and it was amazing. 
Doug said, you know, one of my favorite memories was having an ex-girlfriend who was into necrophilia. So she would cover my entire bod with baby powder, put me in the freezer so that I'd be cold and the baby powder would dry up like I'm dead and my skin would be all pale and patchy and she would pretend to have sex with me like a dead body. It's very aggressive stuff. Then one day, Carol's son, Chris Bundy, is watching TV and Ted Bundy's on the news. And he looks at his mom and is like, Mom, is that my uncle? Do we have anything? (laughs) He's like, do we have anything to do with this man? And Carol comforted him. Oh, no, 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 sweetie. We don't ever associate with those types of people. They're serial killers. How ironic that she would turn into one. Yet behind her bedroom door, Carol was talking to Doug about serial killers. Now, some side note, in the 80s, LA was a serial killer's dream. It was their hunting, their prowling grounds. News came out about Lawrence Bittaker, Ray Norris, the toolbox killers. Doug hated them. He called them vicious, cruel bastards that were stupid enough to leave so much evidence. If that were me, I wouldn't leave that much evidence. What are they audio recording these girls for? Very funny, very funny after what he did in college. Now, while this is happening, Carol's life seems to be getting back to normal. She's working with elderly patients. She even got a license. Sweet, sweet Doug convinced her to buy a giant station wagon. He convinced her it was perfect for the boys and for grocery shopping. And it had an incredibly deep, deep, deep trunk. Carol would say, I had no idea what Doug was later going to do with it. And from then on, their relationship only got weirder. Doug would pretend to be her boyfriend, but at the same time would encourage her to sleep with other men. But if she started to like another guy, he would swoop and warn her and say, he's out to get you. He wants to manipulate you for your money. Anyway, Carol, can I borrow your car? It was after one of these occasions that Doug borrowed her car and Carol found a knife hidden inside. And she's like, what the hell? What is this knife for? Oh, that? That's protection from strangers. You know, it's a nice car, and you just never know. As a matter of fact, Carol, you live in an unsafe neighborhood, and you should get yourself a weapon, like a gun. So the two of them pick up some guns. Well, we might as well get two, Carol. One for you, one for me. But it needs to both be under your name. I did time in Indiana for robbery, so I'm a convicted felon, and I can't get a gun. At this point, Doug had never committed murder, but he would come pretty damn close. Sunday night, he takes Carol's car to the local supermarket on Sunset Boulevard, and he meets up with a sex worker by the name of Charlene Anderman. She had agreed to give him fellatio for $40. So he parks the car somewhere hidden, and she starts doing the deed. And she almost burst out laughing because his penis was incredibly small. But she bent down anyway, and she realized Doug had put a knife up to her neck. And she tried to get up and unlock the door to get out, but he stabbed her. And they started continuing for the next few minutes. And he kept asking her, what's your name? What's your name? While he's stabbing her. Charlene. Well, Charlene, do you have a family? Do they care about you? Yes, I have a family. And yes, they do care about me. Oh, you're all wet, Charlene. What's the matter? You wet your pants? You scared or something? No, that's blood. You're hurting me. And he laughed and he said, I know. He tried to choke her, and he tells her, this is your last round, baby. But Charlene wasn't done. She put her feet up on him and pushed as hard as she could, managed to jump out the car, and she started screaming when she got out. Doug just zoomed off into the darkness of L.A. Charlene tried to report it to the cops, but they really didn't care because she was a sex worker. They're like, what? Your life? We don't care about that. Who told you to get into this dangerous profession anyway? But 
Carol was changing. Even her sons noticed it. She started getting a lot more abusive. Carol started hitting her kids more. She would also walk around the apartment naked, like butt naked around her kids who are, you know, like eight years old, which is, it's weird. And it wasn't just that. Like one night Chris was up and uh, Chris is one of the sons. Doug walked into the apartment just soaked in blood, like blood all over his jacket, all over his teeth, everywhere. And he rushed to the bathroom. Carol helped him clean up and she would tell her sons, oh, sorry about Doug. Don't, don't, don't tell anyone. He was in a bike accident. Later that night, Chris walked into the kitchen and saw Carol clean a bloody knife. So Chris tried to forget it, but then it happened again. And this time, Doug told Carol that someone was getting robbed and he jumped in to stop it. But he ended up stabbing that person and slitting him open from the stomach up to the chest. Oopsie. And then one time when Chris was giving them a rough time, Doug had Chris sit down. He put a hairbrush up to the left of his spine and he said, if I stab you right here, it would go right through your heart and kill you. You know that? And Carol's standing there and instead of screaming, don't touch my kid, she said, yes, yes, it would. She wouldn't even do anything when Doug would show eight-year-old Chris his porn collection. Doug tried to teach the two boys how to fight, but like using knives. So Chris ends up hating his mom, hates being at home, and he starts hanging out with his friend Alice, who lives in the same apartment complex. Now, Alice is a little bit older. She's 11 years old, but still the kid, you know? Mm -hmm. Sometimes she would come over to hang out with Chris. Now, Alice had been abused growing up, so she just kind of assumed that sometimes male family friends would touch her inappropriately, and that's just what old male adults do. Wow. And Doug was really nice to her. He would let her lay in his bed so that she could cuddle his teddy bear. Again, she thought that this was normal for like adult men to have teddy bears and would let you cuddle them. He would even show her pictures of another young girl with teddy bears and, you know, the teddy bear under the blanket, it looked like it had a boner and she would he would just start abusing her. Alice never told Carol or her mom, but it seemed like Carol already knew and she was jealous. One day she sat little Alice down. 11-year-old Alice, and said, that's the man I love, you know, in a tone that you would talk to another woman your age because they're hitting on your man. It just boggles my mind that this full-grown mother, instead of feeling the need to protect Alice, was instead jealous of her. Like, what? Sometimes Doug would put Alice in the backseat of Carol's car, drive around, and have her pick out a sex worker. And she was forced to sit in the back to watch the sex worker give a blowjob to Doug. He even forced her to pick out his porn magazines for the week. And one time they picked up a sex worker and Doug was like, hey, Alice, make a pass at her. Say something. And Alice just said, nice jugs, babe. And the sex worker was so freaked out, she booked it out of the car and Doug thought it was hilarious. And then Carol started joining in on the abuse. Doug encouraged all three of them to shower together. And Alice, this is heartbreaking, said that they were really nice about it. They would say things like, if you don't want to, you don't have to do anything with us. To which Alice would respond, oh, then I don't want to. I'd rather go to the movies or something, if that's okay with you. And they would say, yeah, sure, of course. We can go see the movies and then we can have sex afterwards. Like Alice had no idea that this wasn't normal and the abuse went on for months. During this time, Carol gave custody away to her kids and uh, shipped them off to Grant's parents' house, or her ex-husband's house. And she would later tell everyone, oh, I was trying to protect the boys from Doug. But let's be real, she probably felt like they were getting in the way. And she wanted Doug to herself. She wanted the house to do wild things. 
Now with just them in the house, Carol went full into that sex slave role. Her only request was that Doug does not have sex with other women. And when she requested this, he said, well, it's not my fault that you're underwhelming and unattractive and I don't want you anymore. You're a mood destroyer and you're too damn possessive. So it hurt Carol's feelings. So I don't know why she went along with what happened next, but she drove Doug to Hollywood where they picked up a super young sex worker and Carol would pay them out of her pocket to let them have sex and she would watch. And it would be really embarrassing because at times the sex worker could not get Doug's micropenis hard. So they would just give up, but she would still have to pay them. And then the couple would try something different, like swinging. They would start looking for couples to swap with, but then again, Doug could not get a hard on. And on top of that, nobody really wanted to have sex with Carol or Doug. And then Doug comes home one day and he says, hey, I was in your car and I was cleaning my gun and it accidentally fired. So there's a bullet hole in your car. Carol's like, oh, that makes sense. I totally believe you. Is that what happened? No. Here's what really happened. Doug had lured a 17-year-old girl into his car. Her name was Marnette Comer, and she was found three weeks later. Now, we don't know much about her except for that she was a runaway, and we know at some point Doug shot her, slit her stomach with a knife, and dumped her body in the woods. That's how the killings began. Let's talk about Cynthia Chandler. She went by Cindy, and she had two sisters. But Cindy was kind of her mom's favorite. She was just this ball of sunshine. She was she had these big birthday parties growing up. She was made homemade cakes. I mean, she was really, really loved. And it was during that time that her mom remarried, and things started getting wild. So Andy, her stepdad, had two daughters of his own, Gina and Judith. And now none of the girls, like this is like five girls in one house, none of them wanted to be part of this blended family from either side. They're like, this sucks. But then Cindy and Gina, they got so close, even though they weren't related. Cindy was 16, Gina was 15, and they were going through the same stages. They were obsessed with makeup, obsessed with boys. They started skipping classes together to hang out, and they would go to the pier with their friends. And the two girls, they started failing classes, and the parents started getting worried. Sometimes, they wouldn't come home for days. And if they got in trouble, they would just run away. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales events on Camrys, Corollas, and more. When you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. To be completely transparent with you, I am still at that stage in my life where if you tell me, hey, something's going to make you feel better or something's going to make your skin clear, I'll probably be like, give me the clear skin. But growing up is realizing that you can have both. And I have made it a habit to implement things in my life that let me have both. Did you know that your gut health really impacts your skin health? And not just skin, apparently your gut health can impact your immune system, your energy levels, even your mental health. That is why I've now added my favorite probiotic 
from Symbiotica to my morning routine. It sounds weird to say, but Symbiotica's health supplements are now part of my skincare routine almost. If you guys don't know, Symbiotica is a supplement company that only uses clean premium ingredients in its formulas. No seed oils, no fillers, no additives, no natural flavors, and no artificial ingredients. Symbiotica also formulates all of their supplements for optimal absorption. For example, I love their vitamin C so much, which is also really good for your skin. If you didn't know, everybody loves it. I mean, it's probably the most popular vitamin C amongst all of my friends and family. We love Symbiotica. Their vitamin C is formulated with liposomal technology, which basically means the vitamin C is delivered to the part of your digestive tract where it can be optimally absorbed. And I just love throwing one in my bag on the go, especially when I'm traveling. Symbiotica makes it so easy to stick to a routine, not just because of their supplements being great and tasting great and making me feel great, but also because they get delivered monthly. That means I never have to worry about refilling my supplements or running out. And it's just so easy to pause a delivery or add a new supplement to my delivery. With Symbiotica, I've really noticed an improvement in my skin health, but also I feel like I have more energy and mental clarity. Symbiotica has countless high quality supplements that you can choose from. Sleep supplements, cognitive supplements, anti-aging supplements. If you're not sure which supplements would be best for your specific needs, you can do a short quiz on Symbiotica's website and they'll recommend what you could benefit from. This year is your year. Are you ready to feel the results? Head over to symbiotica.com and use code ROTTEN for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. That's symbiotica.com and use code ROTTEN. So the parents fell out of their league. They spent most of their nights driving around the neighborhood looking for their daughters. They never had any luck. One time, Cindy stepped on a glass shard while trying to run away, like a broken glass piece. And for the next few weeks, she had to stay at home. She had to heal. She was on crutches. And her grandma straight up told her, maybe this will teach you a lesson. Maybe this will stop you from running away because there are monsters out there and they will come and they will get you. It sounds really scary, but during this time, the news was full of Ted Bundy, Hillside Stranglers, the Toy Box Killers. So yeah, there was just a panic in all of America. Cindy did not register this danger though. I mean, she's a young girl. She said, Grandma, why would anyone want to hurt me? And then one night at a party, Gina was raped, but they still kept running away. Anyway, June 11, Carol comes home and she sees a letter on the table. Sorry I missed you. Talk to you later. Love, Doug. So that night, she decides she needs to pick up some groceries. She needs the Buick, but Doug had taken it to another apartment complex because he was staying with another girlfriend of his. Does she know? Yeah. Okay. So she doesn't tell Doug, but she just uses her key to get into the Buick, and that's when she saw it. A bunch of bloody clothes, a fuzzy blanket, paper towels, and a duffel bag in the back seat. I mean, her mind went into overdrive. They'd been talking about killing for so long. Did he finally do it? If he did, I mean, she would cover for him, no doubt. So she even took it upon herself to trash his bloody clothes. That she, she kept the clean ones, though, took them home. And the next morning, she tried to call Doug while he was at work. They had this 30-minute conversation. Carol could not or would not remember it. But it seems clear, like, what happened. So Carol said the next few days, they're watching the news, and she starts putting two and two together. This is what she kind of put together. The murder went something like this. On Wednesday, June 11th, Doug was cruising down Sunset Boulevard and he spotted two young girls at a bus stop, Cindy and Gina. Now, all Doug ever wanted were two young girls, especially a young blonde girl like Cindy. So he pulled over, rolled down his window, and uh, they refused to split up. So he invited both of them into the car. Cindy got in the front, Gina in the back, and the girls told Doug that Cindy was going to be famous. She was going to audition for a TV commercial. 
Now, Doug forced Cindy to go down on him and told Gina to look away, but he started getting upset. Cindy wasn't giving it her all, he felt, and Gina was already looking away at this point, so she didn't see him reach for his gun. He turned around, shot Gina. Cindy was so shocked, she lifted her head up, and he shot her too. Neither of them were dead, though. In fact, they were moaning in pain, so he shot them again. Gina in the head, Cindy in the heart. Now, now they were both dead. He looked around, made sure nobody saw what happened. He slumped the bodies over and he started driving again. He, he kept reminding himself of the ABCs. Always be cool. He drove to the Burbank area where his Jurgens plant is and he went to his garage, dragged their bodies out. And at one point, Gina's arm shot up and it scared him shitless. But he decided, well, I'm not going to do anything. She's already dying anyway, so it's fine. Now, I don't know why Doug had a bed in his garage, but he did. And he placed the two girls on there in a 69 position and proceeded to assault and sodomize them. Then he went to Carol's apartment, left her a note, and he was giddy. After months of fantasizing, he did it again. He showered at Carol's place, left for his girlfriend's apartment. He even took Carol's Polaroid camera to take it back to the garage to assault the two girls' bodies further while taking these pictures. And when he was done, he wrapped the bodies up in blankets and stuffed them into the car. He dumped them near Disney Studios. They were found the next day. Interestingly enough, um, they were found on the freeway, like the highway. And they were on the opposite side of the freeway as the first victim of the Hillside Stringers, Yolanda Washington, was found. So there was a lot of, a lot of overlap of confusion of, you know, what's going on. Yeah, I feel like we talked about exactly, this, Exactly, right? yes. So you- the, he goes by the Sunset Killer. Yeah. And this was the Hillside Stranglers. Wow. Yeah. LA was just a lot. So the news breaks of the two young girls found on the side of the highway. And of course, at first, the girls' parents are freaked out. And Andy calls up the morgue. And I don't know if he forgot. I don't know if it was the, the trauma, the stress, the adrenaline. But even though the description literally matched his girls down to the birthmark and everything, he hung up and yelled at his wife, don't worry, it's not our girls. It's probably brain yeah, working overtime just to deny. to deny. So they had a peaceful morning, get into their car, and drive around all day looking for, them, looking for their girls. They would not find them. The next day, the mom was like, okay, well, we should go to the morgue and just make sure it's not our girls. And they went to ID the bodies, and it was. And she started punching her husband. You son of a bitch, you son of a bitch, you lied to me. And she was heartbroken. They all were. Janet was said to wake up from her sleep screaming. And she would wake up wondering, did my girls scream when they were attacked? The parents were told by the police that they had some leads, which they did. So the same day, a woman called in and she went by the name Betsy. Now, she said she thought her boyfriend might be the killer. Yeah. Okay. Betsy's Carol. So she said, what I'm trying to do, this is how she talked. What I'm trying to do is ascertain whether or not the individual that I know, who happens to be my lover, did in fact do this. He said he did, but I don't know. You know, there was some bloody clothing that I did get rid of. And the police said, well, that doesn't really match the crime scene. Which I'm like, why would it though? It's not like there was torn clothing left behind. Like he had blood on his clothes. Why would that match the crime scene? Yeah. But why is she calling? I thought she wants to cover. She's trying to get information. She is trying. Yeah. So suddenly Betsy starts calling herself Claudia and she said, but I'm not sure if it was my boyfriend and I don't want him to get in trouble if it's not him. But, you know, here are some leads. He's white, 42 years old. He has blue eyes, which was not Doug. Doug was actually even 32. And she kept asking about, well, can you give me some other things at the crime scene so I can make sure it's my boyfriend and then I'll drag him to the police station if it is. 
And soon the police are like, okay, this woman is not calling to give information. She's calling to get information. And she got frustrated when they wouldn't give her any confidential information. She hung up. The police get another call. But this time it was from one of Cindy's friends, one of the victim's friends. So apparently the killer had called her. Cindy died with her phone book in her purse. And the killer went through that phone book. Yeah, Doug went through that phone book and found her best friend's number. Her name is Mindy. And was like, hey, I killed your friend. And guess what? I made love to them. And it felt so good. So good. And now I want to do it to you. I ejaculated in them. And now I want you, Mindy. But the phone could not be traced. The next day, Doug drives Carol out to where he dumped the bodies of the girls, which he referred to as the twins. Now, during this car ride, he had his gun and Carol was nervous. He turned to her and said, you think I'm going to kill you or something? You seem nervous. Well, I guess the thought has crossed my mind. Don't worry, I'm not going to kill you. At least not now. As they drove further into the highway towards the countryside, Doug turned to her and said, don't worry, even if I did kill you, I wouldn't dump you here. I'd give you a proper burial. So instead of taking her to where he dumped the, quote, twins' bodies, he told her about his very first victim, Marnette. He brought Marnette up to the ravine, cut up her stomach to encourage the wiggly squirmies, which uh, I'm assuming he's referring to maggots to accelerate the decomp process. He even took Marnette's clothes and gifted them to Alice, the 11-year-old he's molesting. Oh, and Carol, if this is scaring you, and you try to run away from me, or if you turn on me, I will take one of your boys and you will spend the rest of your life wondering what I did to him. Carol said, it's fine. I, I'm going to cooperate with you. At first, she would try to tell the police that she didn't turn him in because she wanted to save her life and the lives of her boys. But Carol soon found out that she thought murder to be very, very fun. So at this point, Doug and Carol's relationship had changed a lot. Doug had all the power. Not an iota of power was being wielded by Carol. Doug would bring home women and parade them around in front of Carol in Carol's apartment. He would even make Carol pay for sex workers. And while he would have sex with them, he would never, ever touch Carol. But the worst part for Carol was that not even that he's a killer or that he wasn't even nice to her anymore. He just kept degrading her intelligence. He would say things like, you're so incompetent. I don't even know how you can keep a job. Anyway, one day they decide to hire another sex worker for Doug. But this time, Carol would be in the back with a gun. And Doug said, if you want, you can kill the sex worker. And that will be your first victim. And that'll be a great fantasy for both of us. If not, at least I'll get a blowjob out of it. So they find a young girl. Let's call her Jane. And Doug told her, miss, miss, my wife back here doesn't really like to give blowjobs. And I could really use one. Would you mind? So she gets paid her money, gets in the front. Carol introduces herself as Barbara and Jane starts, you know, doing what she does. But Doug had signaled for Carol to pass him the gun. But stupid Carol passed it the wrong way. And I'm saying stupid Carol because that's how Doug refers to her. Not me saying she's stupid. I mean, she's evil and stupid, but you get it. He had to move the gun around. And during this time, it gave enough time to Jane to realize something's wrong. And it led to Doug shooting her, but she didn't die. She was moaning in pain and Doug yelled back, be calm, Carol, don't scream, be cool. And he was ready to kill Carol if she flipped out. But instead, when he turned around, he saw her cool as a cucumber and she calmly stated, don't worry, I'm all right. Carol got into the front, put Jane's head in her lap. Now, Carol being a nurse said that Jane could have been saved if they drove to the ER right away. But instead, she started taking off Jane's clothes and her jewelry. They drove to a small stream and dragged her body 20 feet into the bushes and just left her there. Jane would to this day be a Jane Doe. 
Her skeletonized remains were discovered nine months later. There are reconstructions of her face in hopes someone can ID her, but um, they haven't yet. Now let's talk about Eggsy Wilson, who was born in Arkansas. Now, her father had died when she was nine, and she just overall had a really rough life. She was born in poverty. She couldn't even spell properly when she graduated high school. So she starts working as a waitress in a motel after school. And she meets this local pimp and uh, falls in love with him. And that's how she moves to L.A. and falls into sex work. A week later, her head would be in Doug's freezer. But it wasn't just Eggsy in the pimp's car headed to Los Angeles. There were four more girls cramped inside this little Cadillac, including a woman by the name of Karen Jones. Karen had lived a very normal life up until this point. Very different from Eggsy. She went to college on a scholarship, but she got pregnant, ended up dropping out and losing everything. She gave birth and she engaged in sex work to support her child. So they get to L.A., and while the girls are working and even getting arrested a few times, Derek the pimp is just hanging out while he made money from them. On the night of June 23rd, this is Sunday night, the girls are getting ready to be out all night. Meanwhile, Doug is out looking for his next kill, and he stops when he spots three young women standing on the side of the road, and he rolls his window down, and he said, Hey, my wife doesn't give blowjobs, and I want you two, the two blondes. Only one of them get into the car with him, and it's Eggsy. And as she's performing oral sex on him, she shot, he shot her in the head. As she died, she bit his penis, and that made him incredibly angry. And uh, that might influence what he did next. He dragged her body out of the car, stripped her naked, started to decapitate her with a knife. So part of it he felt was because he was angry, and then another part was he didn't want to dig the bullet out of her skull, so he wanted to just take her head, I guess. He got a plastic bag from his kill bag that Carol packed for him. Yeah, what a loving girlfriend. Why don't you just pack his lunch instead? He placed her severed head inside, drove off, leaving the body, but taking the head with him. He circled around, and that's when he saw Karen standing there. And she was like, okay, fine, I'll get in the car. And if there was any blood on the seat, it was just too dark for her to even notice. Doug didn't want to have sex with her, but he just wanted to kill her for fun. He thought it was hilarious that she had no idea that her friend's severed head was in the back seat. So he drove her near Burbank Studios, takes out the gun, she screams, and he shot her in the temple. He ripped out her earrings, stole money from inside her shoe, and pushed her body out onto the curb. And then he drove back home to Carol. He placed his plastic bag, went upstairs. Carol was asleep, and they both sat on the bed, and he described what he did. She said in that moment, she felt a strong bond, a strong sense of mental intimacy, a bond stronger than a sexual bond. Yeah. Doug even told her, if we're ever caught, I'll take the fall for both of us. Your defense is that you're just a dumb housewife that's mesmerized by my undenying charm. A few days later, Carol asked to see the head and Doug opened up the freezer and he kept trying to warn her. It's too gross for you to see. No, I don't want to show you. And she just kept saying, listen, I work with dead people. It's not going to freak me out. He placed the head onto the sink. The mouth was open and Doug picked up the head by the hair and started swinging around while laughing. And he told her, I brought it into the shower with me and pretended that she was still alive and engaged in necrophilia. Well, he said it not like that. Carol laughed, and later that day, they found out through the news that the head belonged to a woman named Eggsy Wilson, but they referred to her as Toothless. Now, there's two different versions of what happened next. So either Carol wanted to put on makeup on Eggsy's head because Doug wanted to engage in necrophilia again, so she was essentially 
prepping the face for him or she was putting makeup on her so that they could dispose of her, which doesn't make sense because you're just leaving so many fingerprints. And I I, honestly, I think it's the former rather than the latter. Mm -hmm. Either way, one of those things take place. And Carol and Doug place her head in a thrifted chest loaded up in the car. They go through the in and out drive through. And at one point they get stuck at a red light with a severed head in their car next to a cop car. And Doug was worried that Carol was going to freak out, that she was going to panic. But he looked over and she's quietly sipping on her Diet Coke from In-N-Out, cool as a cucumber. They drive to a relatively empty parking lot and with gloves on, Carol just threw the chest out the window. Just like threw it out. The next day it would be found. Meanwhile, Doug and Carol, they decide that they're going to have to clear out his garage. The one that was used to assault Cindy and Gina, they had to throw out that bed frame, clean the blood off the floors and the bloody mattress. We're going to do something about that. Carol saw this painting inside this garage and for some reason she was like, oof, I'm going to keep it. I want to hang it up in our apartment and, you know, really turn our apartment into a home. When she turned it around to nail it to the wall, she noticed blood everywhere. And Doug laughed and he said, oh, those, those are from Gina. Carol did not care. She still hung it up. With and all the blood. On the back, yeah. And during Carol's off days, she would make Doug lunch and bring it to his workplace. Meanwhile, Doug would spend all of his free time going on dates and picking up sex workers. He would even bring women over and ask Carol to leave the room so that they could have sex comfortably on the bed. Doug honestly had too much faith over his control over Carol. He thought that he had her wrapped around his little finger. He thought he could treat her so badly and there was nothing she could do about it. But by the time that July rolled around, news was spreading about someone dubbed the Sunset Killer. And it was getting impossible for Doug to get girls in his car. The girls were moving down to OC instead. They all refused to get in the car and everyone was on high alert. They were so desperate, Doug even suggested picking up hitchhikers. But there were no hitchhikers. I mean, the streets were a ghost town at night. Everyone was on edge. So Doug, feeling this desperation, he tells Carol in the car, I just want to go to a Mexican bar and massacre everyone. She tried to like calm him down. Doug, it's okay. I'll have sex with you. And Doug was like, ew, no. (laughs) He just wasn't into her. He felt she was too ugly, too clingy, too possessive, incompetent, jealous, clingy. So Carol starts asking these questions and she's getting upset. She's like, hey, I feel like we're not in a relationship anymore. I feel like all you want to do is kill people. Like you only want to hang out with me if there's a threesome or if I'm paying for your sex worker or if we're killing someone and I just want to be in an intimate relationship. Meanwhile, Doug is like just zoning her out. He's like, oh, I got to focus on creating a false trail for, you know, the sunset killer. So he had Carol call the cops pretending to be a sex worker. And um, she said, hey, my pimp is black and he's the sunset killer. And this is why I think that Doug did not leave the army because he was trying to save black men because he wants to pin this whole thing on a black man. And he's like, it'll be so easy because they're black. So he was like, yeah, call them. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I think he's really suspicious. Did I mention he's black? Like it was all about race. And when she hung up, Doug was yelling at her. Like you suck at acting. What's wrong with you? And then he was like, oh, shoot, you know what's good? I just need to get some black pubic hair and try to plant it at the next crime scene. Hey, Carol, you need to get me some black pubic hair. So what does she do? She goes to work and asks a fellow nurse, can I have one of your pubic hairs? What? And this nurse is like, are you insane? And she's like, oh, don't think I'm crazy. It's like for research purposes. Of course, the nurse thought that she was crazy. And she told the other nurses, honestly, she should have told HR, but she told the other nurses and they all started avoiding Carol at all costs. 
Carol was so freaking shocked when she wasn't invited to a co-worker's birthday party. Her feelings were freaking hurt. She didn't understand. She, are you kidding me? Why, would, why wasn't I invited? Like, you really thought that they wanted to hang out with you, Carol. What's going on? Later that month, Carol called up her ex, Dick, and was like, hey, I'm dating the sunset killer and I can't leave him. And honestly, it's kind of hot that he's killing people. And Dick is like, what? Right after she hangs up, she calls back immediately. Hey, sorry, I was testing a theory for like this novel that I'm writing and I wanted to see if it was believable. And it was, haha, <laughs> joke's on you. I'm going to be a New York Times bestseller. Bye. But the fact that she even called her ex to tell them, you know, all of this, she was really disappointed in her relationship with Doug. She kept asking Doug to kill her or else she would take her own life. And he told her, you could do it yourself. He was like, I mean, I guess I'll help you do it as long as I can have sex with you and you're being hung because I heard when you die, your vagina spasms. They're called like vaginal death spasms. And like, that'd be cool to experience it. Near the end of July, Carol writes a will and a letter, leaving all her furniture to Doug, and a letter stating, What's wrong with me? I screw up everything. He says he's not my lover. He's only my roommate. He hasn't touched me in months, and I just can't stand it anymore. I can't handle living anymore. I'm a piss-poor mother, and Douglas, I love you. That morning, she calls off work and tells them, Hey, I can't come to work. I'm going to go kill myself. That's literally how she describes it. She gets into the car. She takes insulin, Librium, which is a very strong sedative. And she also swallows additional Librium tablets. She waits in the garage for 10 minutes, hoping Doug would rescue her, run down and realize how much he loves her. But after 10 minutes, she starts feeling drowsy. She drives to her favorite restaurant, Parks, and then loses consciousness. She wakes up in a hospital. Doug only called the paramedics because Carol's work called him and was like, hey, you should really do something about this. So she wakes up and she tells everyone at the hospital, I'm in love with a maniac. Don't be like me. Everyone's like, what? Jack Murray even came to visit her. And as of right now, they're like on good terms. He refused to do anything sexual with Carol unless it was a threesome. But I guess they were still friends. So when Carol is finally discharged, Doug decides, well, shoot, let's make the best of it and forces 11 year old Alice and Carol to have a threesome with him again. For whatever reason, the next day, Carol takes Alice to a family counseling center and um, Carol puts Alice on her lap, hugs her and says, I'm her mom and my boyfriend is sexually involved with my daughter, Alice. It's suspected that she did this because she was jealous. So she wanted Alice out of the picture. Now the counselor, tell me why, asks Alice, and how do you feel about that? Do you feel bad? And Alice, being so traumatized and never having a nice adult in her life, thought it was sweet of the couple to even give her wine before taking inappropriate pictures of her because she never had an adult care about her comfort levels. So Alice said, I guess it doesn't really bother me. And the counselor looked at her and said, well, shoot, if it doesn't bother you, don't bother me and there's nothing we can do about it. Have a good one. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So they just get released from this, quote, family counseling facility. I mean, are you kidding me? What? So then afterwards, Carol brings Alice to get her closer to Jack. So Carol had been on the hunt looking for a woman to have sex with her and Jack, but nobody wanted it. They just didn't care for it. So why not offer up a threesome with 11-year-old Alice? They meet up in Jack's van and Jack nervously touched Alice and said, okay, I'm interested. Yeah, as if he's like interested in buying like a Nintendo Switch. Suddenly, Carol flipped and was like, you're disgusting. I can't believe you're interested in a child, which is weird. 
So anyway, fast forward to August 3rd, three days after Carol's suicide attempt. Jack wanted to cool off at a bar and Jeanette wanted to stay back at home. So Jack goes alone. He's flirting with woman and Carol shows up and she asks Jack, hey, you want to come outside and check out something cool? In her trunk, he, she shows him a kill bag. Inside of it were guns, paper towels, you know, all of these things. Now, Jack didn't really think of it. He just thought Carol was an odd one. But then he looked up and saw her face. She looked terrified. She said, no, I'm serious, Jack. We go out almost every single night hunting. And I, I need help. I need you to help me. Jack was like, what? No. I mean, I need to know what's going on before I help you. Why don't we meet back up here after the club closes? I need to finish up my drinks. So Jack goes back into the bar, tells his friends all the weird things that just happened outside. And they're like, what? You got to call the cops on Carol. Meanwhile, Carol's sitting in the car waiting for Jack and she's just stewing in her thoughts. What is she asking? What kind of help is she asking? To get away from Doug. Oh, okay. And uh, she realized how dumb she was being. Jack was going to rat her out. She needed to kill him. Sure, Doug always told her that she could never do anything alone because she was too dumb. She was too incompetent, but she had to. And Doug would be proud of her. He wanted Jack dead anyway. So after the bar closes, Jack meets up with Carol in his van. And even though he believed every word Carol said and was terrified of her because she was a killer after all, he still wanted sex. How can one resist? And while Carol is telling him about how scared she is, he's like pushing her head down. And while she's doing things to him, he asked to meet up with Alice again. And Carol said in that moment, she knew that he had to die. So she turned him over so she could quote, she called it butt play. And when he wasn't looking, she whipped out a gun and she shot him. She felt his pulse. It was steady. So she shot him again. And Doug was right. Killing was fun. Then she grabbed her knife and stabbed him six times. But then she was like, wait a minute. I need to make it look like a psycho killer did it. So she stabbed his butt and slashed up his anal cavity. Now, she said it's to make it look like a psycho killer did it. I believe Carol does qualify as a psycho killer. But, you know, once she calmed down, which, by the way, the whole time she was screaming, you want a piece of ass? Here's a piece of ass. Once she calmed down, she realized, fork. The bullets that are in his head, they would match the sunset killer's victims. And I and Doug, we both know Jack. So I got to decapitate him. So she saws off his head, tries to clean up her fingerprints, stuffs his head into a plastic bag, leaves the van. It's 3 a.m. at this point, And she said that she dropped the head out of the bag at one point and had to pick it up in the middle of the parking lot. Um... She used a payphone near the bar to call Doug. I did it. I killed Jack. I got his head in the car. I killed him. She drove back to their apartment where there was an unconscious woman. Not a victim. Well, maybe, but not in this sense. But it was Jack's girlfriend at the time who overheard the call and fainted. So they get the paramedics to come and get her. And they're like, I don't know. She's crazy. And uh, Jack's they, girlfriend? Oh, I'm so sorry. Doug's girlfriend. Oh, so okay. sorry. Yeah. So Doug's girlfriend is there. And they're like, oh, she just like fainted for no reason. And while the paramedics are there, like Carol literally has blood on her blouse. But I guess they were too busy trying to save Doug's girlfriend that they didn't notice. So they get back into the car. Now it's just Doug and Carol. And there is Jack's head in a plastic bag. They start driving, and the whole time, Carol's laughing. Yeah, not creepy at all. And she's mentioning, oh, should we stick it on a fence post? We should take it to the bowling alley and use his head like a bowling ball. But they settled on throwing it into a trash can near Griffith Park. And after this, Carol really starts to unravel. I mean, both of them were starting to get more paranoid because Jack is someone that they both knew. And everybody knew that they all knew each other. Doug even stated, 
man, I really hate that I voted for the death penalty in California because now I'm going to (laughs) die. I can't believe I'm going to get the consequences of the things I voted for. Are you kidding? I'm going to be put on death row. Carol was like, what about those girls? You think they wanted to die? The ones that we killed? I don't think they wanted to die. Yeah, but that doesn't matter, Carol. They're trash. He also told Carol about another girl that he killed recently. Now, we don't know her name, but he called her Water Tower Girl. She was a sex worker and he killed her in his car. He drove to the local water towers and proceeded to engage in necrophilia with her body on the hood of his car. Interestingly enough, he kept saying that he wanted to pretend the women were alive. And even he would use the car engine and the vibration of the car to make them feel alive. So a lot of people said it didn't make sense because, you know, the point of necrophilia is that they're dead. He rarely raped his victims before they died. He did assault them in other ways. But a lot of experts believe that he knew the only way that he could successfully assault someone without getting caught was for them to be dead. Now, the victim was found a few days later, and she is still a Jane Doe to this day. So Carol goes back to work, and she moves on with her life, and it's clear that something's wrong. She would take five sedatives a day to even steady her hands. She jumped at every little sound. I mean, the phone would ring, and she would practically jump out of her hair. Meanwhile, Jeanette is starting to wonder, where the hell is my husband? She thought, okay, maybe he's with another woman. So she does file a police report, but it wasn't until later that week, literally a full week goes by, and coincidentally, Guess who is all at that little bar on Saturday night? Jeanette is there because this is the bar that her husband always goes to. And Carol and Doug are there. And a third girl. Let's call her Maddie. Maddie's there because Carol brought Maddie for Doug, hoping for a threesome. It was near midnight when the bar, they just see these flashing police lights everywhere. They had just found Jack's car. And inside of his car, they found his headless body. Mm-hmm. Someone ran into the bar saying, Jack Murray's dead. And Carol let out a hysterical high-pitched scream and she started shaking and she said, no, it's not true. There's no way he can't be dead. And she looked like she was in so much shock that, you know, nobody thought it was weird when Doug and Maddie drove her home. Meanwhile, Jeanette's trying to run out out to the scene and nobody let her. They all held her back. She was eventually taken into the station and back at the apartment, Carol kept acting distressed, I guess for the sake of the other woman, for Maddie. And for some reason, they didn't kick her out because Doug still wanted to sleep with her. So Carol was weeping and she pulled Doug aside and was like, get rid of the guns in the car. So he gets rid of them. And he just does that by putting them at his workplace. Now, in the midst of all of this, Maddie spends the night like they all went to bed. And the next morning, Carol is showering in one bathroom. Maddie and Doug are showering in the other bathroom. And the doorbell rings. Carol pops out, dripping wet, full naked, just water splashing all over the carpet, opens the door, police officers. And she says, excuse me, I'm naked. Do you mind waiting while I put on some clothes? She closes the door and she rushes to get Doug. I've got a house full of cops right now. So all three of themselves find each other at the police station. Doug and Carol use each other as their alibis and the police have nothing on them. So they were just forced to let them go. On the ride back, Doug is complaining to Carol like, you're running your mouth. And she just felt really upset. She killed Jack to impress Doug and he wanted this. But instead of being impressed, he seemed more mad than anything. So that night, Doug leaves anxious Carol all alone and takes Maddie out on a date. And the next morning, Carol shows up at work, a complete mess, and she just, she loses it. In the break room with two other nurses, she goes on to tell them the craziest story. So my boyfriend was murdered in a van, and my other boyfriend murdered a bunch of girls, and we dumped their bodies on the highway, and oh, my ex in the van, well, I killed him. Yeah, 
I know you guys are going to have a hard time stomaching this, but I cut his head off and I made a mistake because I forgot about the bullet shells. God, I can only imagine how his body must have looked locked up in that van in that heat in the sun for six days. Anyway, I quit this job. I can't do it anymore. Can someone tell the manager? The two nurses, who, by the way, hated Carol, they had no idea why she would even confide in them. They ran to call the cops. The cops surrounded the building within minutes, but it was too late. Carol was gone. She went to her place and she called the police. She called like three different stations until she was finally put through and she cleared her throat and she said, do you know about the Sunset Murders detective? Would you like to have your man today? Uh, sure. Are you well versed in the details of this murder? Am I, am I what? Are you well versed in the details of this murder? Well, if not, I will give you some details. Foothill Boulevard. She was cut down her belly check second sister chest uh chest wound right through her heart check okay the next one up the line was shot with a different gun we dropped her in some bushes near the stream i don't know if you found her yet okay oh so you found her listen we might we might not oh okay so i'm assuming you don't know about that one uh i'm curious how come all of a sudden you want to turn yourself and this person in because For quite a hell of a long time, he's been treating me like shit. Carol explained that she had to kill Jack Murray on her own and how she's sick of it. Doug wants to keep going, but she can't handle it. She's falling apart. And the honest truth is, detective, it's mighty fun to kill people. If I was allowed to run loose, oh, I'd probably do it again. I know it's going to sound sick and psycho, but I don't think I'm that psycho. But it is kind of fun. It's like riding a roller coaster. Not the killing, but like the action of someone dying. Because, I mean, we didn't kill them in a way that would hurt them. Anyway, I was going to call the Burbank and Van Nuys Police Department to have them meet me for lunch. And I would love to invite you. I think you all would have a blast fighting over who gets to arrest me. Well, ma'am, how would I be able to ID you at the restaurant? Well, I've got short brown hair, glasses, I stumble a lot, and I have a vision problem. In other words, I'm very awkward looking. The detective talked her out of calling the other departments because it seems like Carol was right. He wanted the pleasure of arresting her all to himself, but it was too late. Carol and Doug were going to get arrested. Carol at her apartment, Doug at his workplace. Carol also gave them a bullet that could link them to the murder. She gave them a photo album of Doug and 11-year-old Alice. And she said, here, these photos will give you a good idea of what Doug is like. I killed Jack by myself because he was a real asshole and he deserved to die. And I would like my right to remain silent. But Carol literally could not be silent. Like she continued ranting about the whole murders and about Doug and about Jack and her whole life in the car, at the police station, even walking into the interrogation room. She was just nonstop talking. She told them everything, even her plan to pretend to be a clueless, cute housewife. But she said, I don't know if you guys have ever shot anyone, but like it's fun. And then she stopped talking. And I kid you not, she looked over at the officer and said, Officer Gary, You know what's so wrong about all of this? You look just like Doug. Like you smile just like him too. And I hate to tell you this, but I'm having, um, what's like a nice way to say this? Clitoral spasms. And you know, it's going to be a really long time before I get to, you know, I get to be with a man again. So Officer Gary declined her clitoral spasms and her sexual advances. But there was another incident. The cops took her to her house to take care of some things, which I don't know why they did that. She was escorted by cops and she led them into her bedroom and said, why don't you guys come in? Let's have dessert. It's the last time I'm going to be with a man. I won't tell anyone. Meanwhile, in another interrogation room, Doug was lying like his life depended on it because it did. 
He said it was a coincidence that he had sex with the victims that were murdered. All he did was give them a ride. Okay, fine. I helped get rid of Jack's head. But Carol's terrifying. She did the murder on her own. So at first, he was charged with three counts child molestation, an accessory after the fact to Jack's case. But later, he would be charged with six counts of murder. The police were gathering all the evidence they could. They found the murder weapons at Jurgens, yeah, at Doug's workplace. He tried to pin the whole thing on Jack. He said that Jack was the one that killed everyone and Carol helped him. And now he's being framed. In prison, Carol wrote to Officer Gary, yeah, the one that gave her clitoral spasms. She said, I, I'm so sorry about that. I'm usually gentle and quiet, but sometimes I do get boisterous and I am subject to mood changes, but we should get to know each other. I can offer affection and lots of other good stuff. Signed, Carol B. Gary was disgusted. Outside of hitting on her arresting police officers, uh, Carol hated prison. She really hated eating off paper plates. Like, that's the problem she had with prison. She was bored out of her mind, so she spent her time bothering everyone with letters. She even wrote to Maddie, Doug's most recent girlfriend, which Carol even wrote to Doug. And she told him, sorry for turning you in. I wish I could take it back. But I was just so pissed off because you told me I wasn't worth shit. Oh, and why did you date me? I wonder if it's my fate to be in jail because my last name is also Bundy, like Ted Bundy. And you know, Ted Bundy was married to a woman named Carol at one point. So maybe she's like my soul sister, but maybe I'm Ted Bundy. Shh, bro, you're like, wow, Stephanie, this is a lot of miscellaneous information. Just you freaking wait because Doug is going to use this later in court. So Doug wrote back so that Carol wouldn't testify against him. And he said, you know, I, I just feel like, I'm being framed for something I didn't do. And I hope you didn't kill these people. And I doubt you would kill anyone. But no matter what you told me, you're not my idea of a murderer. Besides, I have a cellmate that's interested in dating you. I'm sorry, what? Is he really trying to lure her friendship with a cellmate? But it worked. Carol was like, wait, really? So she starts corresponding with Bronte, which is Doug's cellmate, who in fact was not interested in Carol, but was being paid by Doug to write to her to try to get something that he could use to blackmail Carol. But all Carol did was promise to send Bronte her pussy juice. That was her way of saying it. I don't know how she was going to send it, if she's going to bottle it up, if she's going to put it on a piece of paper. I don't know. Okay. And then the cherry on top of this horrible, horrible thing is she tells Bronte, listen, I really like you. I really love you. But I just don't know if I'm ready to have kinky sex with a black man. I hate these people. Now, this is where the Hillside Stranglers and the Sunset Killers connect. Kenneth Bianchi, you guys remember him? Well, do you remember that he had a girlfriend that attempted to commit a copycat murder for him? Remember? After he was in prison, she attempted to kill someone in the way that the Hillside Stranglers would so that the authorities would be like, whoa, if the hillside stranglers are still killing, we got to let Kenneth out. Her name was Veronica Lynn Compton. She was in the same jail as Carol Bundy. In fact, they were only one cell apart. They were b friends. Carol told Bronte, this girl Veronica is crazy and I like her. Meanwhile, Doug is also writing letters. He's writing to his girlfriend, Maddie, saying, I miss you. You're a tigress of passion, and I miss your moist, quivering thighs and clutches of ecstasy. That's all I could think about. And he told Maddie, it's up to you to find me a good attorney, a good, soft-spoken, submissive female attorney, someone <sighs> to soften up the female jurors and give the male jurors something to look at. Which, by the way, the only reason that Maddie was talking to him and visiting him three times a week was genuinely she thought that he was not guilty. And he told her that he'd be acquitted. He would write a book on this and he would earn $100,000 easily. And he would splurge and spoil her and they would live life, a lavish life outside of this. 
Maddie even bought his suit for court. It cost $300. But she forgot to buy him shoes. So he showed up in a pristine fancy court and a pair of pretty comical county jail issue canvas slippers. Doug argued for the child molestation charges. He said, well, Carol made me do it. And I do need help, Judge. I know there's something wrong with a grown man that can't say no. And that's me. Besides, Alice wanted it. Yeah, he just couldn't help himself. He was like, the 11-year-old that I molested, she wanted it. What? Doug was also annoyed that he wasn't getting much media attention. So everyone was going on and on about the Hillside Stranglers. And inside of his own jail, the same jail as him, were the Toolbox Killers, the Alphabet Bomber, the Freeway Killer, and the Skid Row Stabber. And he was like, so I'm not the baddest bitch in this freaking jail? I'm so sad about that. So what does this guy do? He starts writing to Veronica. Yeah, the Hillside Strangler's girlfriend. He would write to her about how innocent he was, how he would be out of jail by next August, and he told her he loved her. And he ended it with, but I do love all women except Carol Bundy. He also wrote her some weird poems. Let me crush your sanity under my heel. Let me lash your tender breasts, torment you to the edge, and love you beyond life itself. As I thrust you over the brink into bloodlust and murderous vengeance, I feel the painful invasion, lashing teeth, witches. And then there was. He asked her to testify and say that Carol told her in jail that she committed the sunset murders all by herself and was framing Doug. Oh, and maybe that Jack helped her. He even asked Carol, hey, why don't we try to frame it all on Jack? But Carol's attorneys were like, that's the stupidest defense we've ever heard of. Besides, Carol had a better option. Prosecutors were offering her deal. 25 years to life for the murder of Jack Murray, as long as you testify against Doug. This was so much better than being sent to life for all the murders and probably death row. So the trial starts and it comes out during the trial. Um, this is where like there are also this case is known for the vaginal death spasms. A lot of sources say that Doug was being his victims and killed them in order to feel these vaginal death spasms but it's just a huge topic of conversation and almost debate but charlene the woman who survived she testified remember the first one he stabbed but she mm-hmm. escaped she took the stand her middle and ring fingers were paralyzed from the stabbing and she gave a very emotional story about the how the man laughed while hurting her and guess who burst out laughing in the court him yeah you're like, where was his attorney to shut him up? Well, the man was representing himself. Yeah. And honestly, he heard his case because he threatened a witness at one point who was testifying against him. He said, would it surprise you that I have your current address and your current telephone number? The witness burst into flames and he said, no further questions. But his craziest stunt to date and his craziest defense was that Carol was so obsessed with Ted Bundy and his wife, Carol Bundy, that she wanted her and Jack to be Ted and Carol. And they went around killing everyone. So there was an incident where one of the murder dates had lined up with one of Ted Bundy's victims' murder dates. So mm-hmm. it was like the same day. Mm-hmm. So he said, see? This is like a, like a soul connection. So at one point he was like, either she's a copycat Carol and Ted, or, or how do we know she's not Carol Bundy, Ted Bundy's wife? How do, how do, we, how do we know that? Yeah, so, I mean, no one's buying this. The jury is like, okay, this guy is bonkers. So Carol ends up testifying, and she went all in. She explained how Doug had oral sex with a severed head. She said Doug always told her about his fantasies of having a woman on top of him and Carol shooting her to death so he could feel these vaginal death spasms. Doug was so upset by all of this and how the judge was letting her testify that he called the judge a sleazy 
sucker, a gutless worm, a spineless bastard, a fat cat, an asshole, and a goddamn asshole. At one point, Doug was literally gagged with a piece of leather. Meanwhile, Carol is also busy with the judge, writing him very sexually explicit letters and how she would love to get to know him. What's wrong with these people? Yeah. The psychology... Do they not understand they're being charged right now? Yes. Oh, so later during Carol's trial, one of her favorite things to say that everyone found comical but not comical was, why are you guys treating me like some goddamn criminal? And everyone was like, because you're a goddamn criminal. What the heck? Like, are you crazy? Like, what's going on? The psychology of Doug is is interesting. So he had an IQ of 118 and his verbal IQ was 123. So above Overall, I mean, he had an above average IQ, but he spent his entire life underachieving at everything, not just school. It was clear he had a personality disorder, a number of psychosexual disorders that he was quite sensitive about. Anytime someone said that he had necrophilic tendencies, he said, oh, atypical tendencies. He's diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. And when the courts brought it up, he just shook his head and he said, psychiatry is a kindergarten sport. Maybe 2000 years from now, we'll know something about the inner workings of the human mind. But right now, you guys are just wandering around in the dark. Doug was given the death penalty on all six murder counts. He is still in prison. He actually married a woman named Kelly Kenniston, who is protesting his innocence and is even helping him appeal his sentence. But it didn't work. Even Carol tried to get him an appeal. Even Doug's parents said he's not guilty. He's just misjudged. So what? As for Carol, she was sentenced to two consecutive 25 years to life terms. Her first eligible parole date was 2012, but she died in prison in 2003 of heart failure. During her entire court hearings, like I said, she just kept screaming, you're treating me like I'm some kind of goddamn criminal. Psychiatrists say that Carol was no more controlled by Jack than he was controlled by her. Basically saying, you know, she's acting like she was controlled by him, but it was mutually beneficial. It was the perfect storm. Mm -hmm. She also told her psychiatrist that she started, you know, sex work at 15, and she always felt this compulsion to run through the streets naked at night. She also stated that uh, her father was a great guy, even though he molested her. To make things even more depressing, Carol's kids were placed in foster care, and they too were abused. But somehow, they both turned their lives around and went on to live happy, healthy, well-adjusted lives, and they too were victims in this crime. And that is the story of the Sunset Killer. It was a wild one. And I've been wanting to tell you guys about it since the Hillside Stranglers, but it's so dark and just so intense and heartbreaking. And I can't even, uh, who are these people? And what are your thoughts? Sometimes I do feel like with these serial killer duos, you do have one that's a little bit more controlled than the other, but this one really feels like they're both so disgustingly evil and they're both trying to blame each other and act like they're this, oh, I didn't know how to say no. Let me know what are your thoughts and I will see you guys on Sunday for the mini-sode. Bye.